Hello and welcome to part two with Chris Taylor of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Not going to keep you too long. We're going to head straight back into the conversation. So from a gaming perspective, maybe maybe not too interested from an information management perspective about the industry, although that's probably an interesting question. I think a more interesting one is about that um, in the UX design and the standardization of that and how they per- how that perpetuates through through games because um, one of the things I've heard you speak about before, Chris, is the difference between producing a product and, and the and the art. And I think that's one of the things that we suffer from is that we get mixed up with, um, you know, there's the art of architecture, but there's the art of creating space for people. And then we've just got, we just need to get a product out there. You know, people's homes are viewed as one, as a place of living, but also as a product to sell. And I wonder, how does that tension work in gaming? Well, I think there's a bias that a, per, a specific person, an individual brings to it that they believe in, like they have to believe in it. it. I wouldn't go so far as to say religiously, but it's on that level of you believe that what you're making should be new and innovative and also entertaining and have a great value proposition. So, so someone will pay you for your creative work. You can't make it for just yourself because then you can sell one copy to yourself. You know, that's not going to get it done. So um, other folks are biased to to the other end of the spectrum. Their attitude is um, I'm making this for everyone else, but me, and I'll compromise my own set of artistic values. You know, I'll crank it out. I'll become a factory uh, because I think that's what the world wants. Other folks optimize for money. It's not about what anybody wants. It's about what's going to make the most amount of money. Now, I am the most allergic or the most repulsed by that, um, not, not, repu- not repulsed like vulgarity-wise, but just pushed away from. I tend to live at the other end of the spectrum from doing something that has to be motivated by money. But there's a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, too, that if you look at history and you look at people who can create from the heart and build things that they truly believe have value for the world and value for the society they live in, they will do well in the long run. They produce the value that drives culture and not just drives their, their, uh, their, their bank account. So I tend to sort of see that as, hey, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can really artistically drive something but also pay, pay my, pay my bills and live a good life, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Well, I, I guess as well, there's something in there, the, um, the popularity of games like Fortnite and all of these um, user driven almost where you can create your own version of the game. And it's not just you log in for half an hour, you, you live your, your life ends and it's finished. It's, like it turns into almost your own, um, your own virtual life that that you live alongside your physical life, um, and I think that's that's a really interesting concept. And do you think it people like that at the moment because it's new, or do you think it's um, that's something that actually we need to consider when we're building for people? Is that there must be some level of customizability, and, and people like to have ownership of of what, what they want. Yeah. The whole, if you, if you want to explore the concept um, of the, of the virtual reality, 
Uh, I think it's definitely coming. Uh, I think when we've seen, you know, there's two parts to it, right? There's living, there's entering a world for a short period of time, entering it for a long period of time, feeling an emotional connection and well-being when you're in that world. So therefore, when you're not in the world, you want to go back to it, which people relate to a drug-induced state, which it doesn't have to be. If you're a snowboarder, you're thinking about getting back out onto the slopes and snowboarding. You're getting, you're getting back into the water to kayak, right? You're always thinking about going back to your happy place. So if the virtual reality is your happy place. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's not a drug. It's called, it's called happiness. It's called fun. It's called your pastime, your, 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 your passion. Um, but um, when you look at the modifiability of it, when you look at customization of that world, I think that's just taking it to the next level. Like if you're into cars and again, cars is your happy place. You like driving, you like whatever, and then you're going to modify it and you're going to put in the cool lights. You're going to add, you know, add more horsepower, better tires, change the suspension, right? You're just doing the same thing. You're customizing your passion. So I think that just becomes degrees. Um, but there's people that are plenty happy to run around in a world that isn't changeable, uh, that they get, they bring the customization maybe in at the simplest form to themselves. And that's mm-hmm. the most important thing. I mean, that's, that kind of, mo- that kind of mirrors real life in a way, right? Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm less interested in putting a tattoo on Neil, no offense than I am as putting a tattoo on myself. You know, that's mm-hmm. more interesting to me uh, or, you know, changing the furniture and, in, in the room versus changing my, uh, my hair. I, I start with me and it builds up from there. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it's, it's fun to explore. Yeah. Yeah, I you, like you, it because it was really hard to tell if we were talking about games and a virtual world or we were talking about the real world. Because the parallel you're drawing is that, you know, this is, it's your happy place and it's something that you enjoy. And there is, there is no need to separate that and the same behaviors happen in both places. And I think that customizability as well, that then raises the question of if we, if we bring it back to digital twins in the built environment, it's not necessarily that everybody will want. So for instance, if you're using a a digital twin to operate a building, it's not that all different operators will want different features. It's the fact that they are able to customize they're building using a set of features that's the important part. It's the fact that it's relevant to their world rather than the fact that they have something that's unique. Um, and I think like maybe an, it's a lesson. An ownership thing or something, do you think, maybe, Vicky? It's like, you know, there's that level of control and tweaking and just, you yeah, know. It's like, well, it's like a le- when people with the smart lights and Alexa and all that kind of stuff, like um, uh, my brother-in-law spent hundreds of pounds getting special light bulbs so that he can have the lights red in his living room or blue in his living room. If he says, Alexa, turn the lights green, they go green. And there's no um, reason to it, but because he can, he wants to. Um, but that is not any additional customizability that n- that just he himself has. And I guess that's, that's maybe something that we can learn from gaming is, you know, how far do people want to take it? And exactly like Chris says, are they interested because it's something that they can change or are they interested because it's something that's unique and they're slightly different, different ideas, I think. Yeah. You know, you inspired me to kind of talk about something we, we, we came into, I don't know, it could have been 15 years ago, uh, we called it friction. 
And we thought we had discovered this fantastic concept, like, oh my God, friction. Friction in the, 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 the experience between a person and a piece of software, in our case, a game. We said, hey, Eureka, if we make friction less, if we shorten the friction down to almost nothing, we will create a better experience. Like, duh, like the craziest duh you could ever think of. <laughs> like, what did they do when they invented cars? They, you know, they, they, they made the car easy, right? Here's a wheel, here's a shifter, right? But when they simplified things, they made the car more accessible. Remember they had a crank on the front at one time? Well, I would bet money that sales went up when the crank disappeared and the electric starter went in, right? You reduce friction. There right. were uh, the the pedals were all in different uh, positions, but on different cars when they were first invented. And sometimes, you know, the clutch was a handle, and you know, you actually right. had to use a. You, know, you couldn't get out of one car and get into another, which kind of leads on to uh, an interesting point. I've been playing some of your games, kind of as a preview for this, uh, yeah. and I think in one of the games, the escape key did not open the menu. And it, it was a bit of a eureka moment for me because I thought, well, that's so obvious. But that was a language. That was a standard that had emerged. And it's the same with cars. And I think it's the same with the built environment. You know, that as things grow and mature and develop, standards appear. And in the built environment, we're very keen to lead that standardization. We want mm -hmm. to control it. We're, we're almost trying to do it before we even know what we're making. But it's interesting. How do you think um, that sort of standardization develops in games and, and you know, like how you interact with it and how you use it and maybe even what you expect to get out of it? I mean, I, 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 just to add a little bit to that, I, you know, I remember a time when the direction keys flipped from the direction keys to the W, was it WASD? WASD, yeah. Um, and those, those types of things that happen, like how, how, do, how do you experience it from your end as a game designer? Is it are these all pressed against you? Like, or, or do you, is it sort of one of these things where it's like, oh, we don't even need to think about it now. Menus, escape button, WSAD done. And we just, we, you know, how, how much of the user experience is, there's the visual graphical piece, but then there's that physical piece. I just wonder how much happens behind the scenes from that perspective. It's a, it's, it's a bittersweet moment because we always thought that we were sort of completely in charge of our art, but where there were, it became obvious that we weren't going to keep, we didn't want to keep moving the keys. And when WASTA came out as a standard, we, we followed it. And then it kind of went off the list. It was like, okay, that's the way it's done. And if you can think of, a, of, of an innovation, it has to be centered around the core WASTA keys. So you could start looking at, crouch and pick up item and equip or swap weapon. And you could do that for, especially where it came to shooters, uh, shooters very, very quickly adopted that. I think it was sort of a, uh, 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 I don't want to call it, I don't want to be dramatic here. Uh, it was, you know, it was, it was a fatal error in your, in your design. If you thought you were going to move people to another spot on the keyboard um, you know, when, when dozens and dozens of games used it. And I think that's happening in the industry all around. Uh, I use a ton of web-based productivity apps now, and I look for core functionality in those web productivity apps, like in the upper left-hand corner of whether it's Miro or Gmail or, um, or I should say one of the G Suite products uh, or, uh, or Lucidchart, 
you're looking for a return to home button that you can load a different um, content set, whether it's a new map or a new whatever. That standard, you'd be foolish if you built a if if you built a productivity app tomorrow and you weren't paying attention to the standards that are being set in the web-based productivity space. Did you ever have a scenario in gaming where someone turned around and said, "No, that's my IP"? Not, not in my experiences, but people were doing it. They were suing. There was some suing, but it starts with cease and desists. You generally start by telling someone they can't do that. Like, don't do that. <laughs> and then when they keep doing that, you file like things like injunctions and then, you know, lawsuits to make them stop, use the force of law to stop them from doing something. Um, I'd heard one time that someone had created a patent for when a mouse moved around on the screen, you could you, you didn't have the CPU power to repaint the screen every time. You saved the little rectangle underneath where the mouse cursor went. When the mouse moved, you replaced that section and it was much more performant. Um, mm. there, it's much more complicated than that, but that, I heard that somebody made a patent, uh, but no one ever pursued us in the gaming industry um, for doing that technique. Because I guess at some level, if everybody in the whole industry is using that technique, then it becomes overwhelming. And you also have to watch your, you know, this word that's emerged in the last 10 years called your optics. So big corporations have to watch their optics. They have to watch the way the consumer base is going to respond to a news story about them being bullies. Mm -hmm. If you go out and you bully a bunch of people over something that's trivial, you have bad optics. And that's, that's interesting to me. That's fascinating, actually, because the table seemed to have turned very suddenly. Um, so it wasn't that long ago that it was sexy to be the, the big player, the big dog, like Apple, for instance. Everyone wanted everything Apple because they were, they, they were the ones who, who had ownership of um, their products and their functionality. And then all of a sudden, Android actually got, got much better. Um, it was, uh, there's a lot more interoperability there. Um, and it's, it's less of a thing now to be part of that, that Apple cult. And we have a similar thing in, um, in the built environment. I'm not going to name any names, but there are, you know, you had, you had your big players who for many years, it was sexy to just use their kit and you could, it's like, you know, no, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. You, you, you go with the, the big dog and, and you feel like you're making safe, safe choices, you're making the best decisions. But that's actually all of a sudden over the past few years, I think in many different areas, mm. we're seeing people being more open to going with a little guy, going with the collaborators um, and, um, and wanting to see boundaries get pushed. And that happens a lot more often, that's I right. think, sometimes it's smaller. It's a similar thing in the gaming industry, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Chris, is the... The concept of you know, the, the thing that seems to shift has shifted for me is you know, we speak about the gate, the engine, like an un, you know, Unreal Engine, for example. Um, and I mean, Unreal Engine in a more traditional sense, as a, you know, from from where it came from. Um, I know it's slightly different now when we speak about when we speak about um, the Unreal Engine, but it's there's the engine, there's the how that engine gets. Put, you know, skins get put onto that and it gets turned into a product. And then, you know, as you, as you said before, it's about shipping it, putting on a CD, putting some, album, you know, some artwork on the CD and putting it on a shelf. But now it's on cloud infrastructure. It's, it's now, you know, it's, 
it's you know, instantly multiplayer out of the box or say out of the box out of the chip or downloaded and, and what have you. And I mean, how much of an impact is that? Uh, I mean, I know it's had a profound impact, but like in, in going forward in game design, you know, it's no longer about the creating the world. It's all the other stuff that comes with it. It's, it's how do you connect people? How do you connect to the different marketplaces within it? Um, how do you do resources within the game and connect it to monetization and the behaviors and the loops and all those type of things? Sorry, massive question. Sorry. Well, there's a, there's a lot there. to what you said. Um, first of all, cloud or digital distribution, because really we're not running on quite a lot of the games are not running on the cloud. They're just being downloaded from a CDN with a, with a, with a, uh, a DRM scheme on them to your, uh, to your, to your iPhone, your Android, to your uh, your Nintendo Switch, what have you, because the CPU and GPU reside there, system resources reside there. We are seeing the waters being tested on running games virtually or running games up in the cloud, like the Google uh, Stadia uh, initiative, which is interesting. Uh, I don't see it as a massive success yet. I see it as just a first stage. It's kind of like where VR is and AR is. You know, it's not widespread, but it's it's it, we know it's coming. We know it's it's un, it's unstoppably probably the future. Um, but what, is it five years? Is it fifty? It's probably you know, maybe, is it fifteen? I don't know. I'm um, going back. Um, so there's so much quite so many quite so many things to talk about there. Uh, the the paradigm shift of digital distribution from packaged goods drove sales because now you lowered friction. You could say, oh, I, I'm home. I'm watching the kids or I'm stuck waiting for the, the delivery I'm waiting. I, I don't have time to run to electronics a boutique or some uh, best, best Buy or some place that sells gaming. Going back in the days when packaged games were a thing, really a thing. Um, you could just push a button on your, on your phone and have it in uh, uh, five minutes or maybe it was 50, but it was definitely faster than going to the store. And, um, and then oftentimes it was less expensive because all that supply chain got cut. Physical good manufacturing, transport, insurance, um, and uh, return policies changed. It became, you know, it's expensive to manage a return. It's got to go back to a person. They've got to package up. The package is all busted up. It's got to be shipped back. All those costs went down. And then so friction went down. Costs went down. Accessibility went up. And it, and, and it exploded. And, and during COVID, sales of video games have been, of course, going up because uh, this gets back to another concept, which is value for your dollars. It's huge, right? If you, if you remember back in the day, you bought a movie for $20 at the store in the nice new release. If you bought a game for 40, you went from a two hour $20 purchase to maybe a 20 to 200 to beyond purchase for double the money. I mean, the value proposition was huge. Um, so that's that kind of thing. Going, uh, the, yeah, Vicky, you had asked the question uh, about Android and, and Apple and the love affair that people were having with Apple and how that's faded. You know, for me, I'll make one statement that I feel strongly about is when Apple had the keyboard problem on the MacBook Pros and they didn't immediately say, we need to fix this. We screwed up bad. The, the architecture of this, this device is clearly inferior. We will replace all keyboards free of charge. No questions asked. They did not do that. Instead, all mm -hmm. we heard about was Apple had $200 billion in cash. They were setting records. 
They were doing this, they were doing that. And yet they let us sit out there for two, three, four years. I forget how long it was with our shitty Apple keyboards. And my religion on Apple went from like 10 down to like a six, you know, (laughs) I was, I was disappointed. I think there was even a class action lawsuit filed against Apple to replace the keyboard. And they finally did. And I have a computer here that's got a new keyboard that they replaced, but they broke my heart and they broke the religion in the act and they should learn from that experience and they should never do that again because they're in a position of anybody. They weren't this poor struggling company. They were in the best position in the entire world to do right by their customers and they didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's that, but it, it's that quick action as well, isn't it? Cause I was the same, that's, that's the moment when I swapped out all of my Apple products the same. But it was, and it was that response um, by them. And actually, even just putting your hands up and saying, we, we fucked up or we messed up, you know, um, yeah, even, yeah. even if, and there was, there was none of that. But um, I, I had a really quick question about data and um, so cloud-based games now are collecting data as well as feeding yeah. out information. Yeah which then means there is a return on investment for the games makers. You, you can collect that information, learn, learn almost immediately what's, um, what's popular, what's not. You can make modifications very quickly. Um, and that then pushes us, I think, back into the, the conversation of, of digital twins in the built environment and being able to use, I think you mentioned insurance completely unrelated, but um, it just, it threw my mind to um, construction insurance. Uh, And it's something that we, insurance companies in in our field really struggle because they don't get very much data back um, to learn, to then be able to insure better in the future. and I, I was just interested in your um, experience of, of that shift from all of a sudden having data when you didn't have it before, um, how quickly you were able to utilize it um, and how quickly that changed the way that you made gains. Yeah. So when you look at collecting data and then the analytical process that you do to that data, you can use it for good and you can use it for evil. And it's not really super evil. It's more like using it to, expand your profits. Like people have said about Amazon, they say that because Amazon has access to so much data, they can go off and do a a white label or an OEM or something. They create their own brand of something because they know that, for example, mattresses are selling like gangbusters. So they go to a mattress company, they buy it or they tie it up with a contract for 20 years and they produce, you know, Amazon mattresses and they destroy all the mattress competition. And that's really truly antitrust behavior in the United States. That is, you're, 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 really, you're really, really being a bad player when you do that. Um, because for obvious reasons, for so many obvious reasons, but, that, but the part to focus on really is about how you use that data for good because right or wrong, right? The consumer of any gadget, device, experience, building, whatever, um, wants you to fix the shit that's broken, right? They want you to fix it. And there is this, my dog is making weird sounds. He's, he's actually dreaming. He's dreaming and he's barking in his sleep, which is hilarious. <laughs> oh, bless him. It's funny. 
Mine's in the kitchen downstairs. It, she does the same thing. Just yeah, it's comical, but it, I, do, I don't know if it was interesting. But um, using, I think most of the time, I would say 70 or 80 or 90% of the time, uh, the data that's collected is made to make you a happier customer. So it's appreciated um, and it, it does change things, but it also makes for a more commercial, a commercially viable, profitable experience and it shifts the balance away from art. Do you want, if you could bring back a famous painter or a famous creative person from history, would you want to tell them what you want from them? Or would you say, go be you, go create something fantastic. You know, Michelangelo, go paint something wildly inspiring and awesome. That's driven from your own passions. Don't, don't listen to me. Don't take feedback. Have everybody fill out a form. Hey everybody, Michelangelo's back or whoever, Da Vinci, Da Vinci is a better way. Angelo was the inventor, right? That shows you how much I know. Um, <laughs> cut that part. Give that a vasectomy. They're all turtles. They're all teenage mutant ninja turtles. Oh, that's I'm, true. I'm, that's I'm true. not cutting that part now, just because you said. You, you, uh, <laughs> you, 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 you know, you, you don't want to do a survey and say, do we want another Mona Lisa or do we want something with fruit? No. Uh, that's That, to me, um, is where artistry and the commercialization of, of arts and, you know, sciences and, you know, it all comes to this, this, this juncture where we have to make decisions about why we're in the business and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, but the, uh, some of the most exciting and interesting things I've come across on this planet as a human are the most random, crazy, outside the box lyrics that don't make sense in songs that are, have a poetic uh, thread that runs through them, but doesn't, but doesn't dictate specifically the story or the, what you would need to take away. And you get to fall into it and dream up your own, you know, emotional state because you're in it. You might've had a breakup or you might've just got a brand new job and you can plug into the song. And it's that to me. And the band was probably 20 years old and they were probably just banging away in the garage and they probably wasn't saying, let's do something genius. They were saying, let's just make some music. And they stumbled into something. And it's, I'll tell you, as a profound thought of mine, that's why when bands become successful, and I know the UK produces literally some of the greatest uh, you know, music in the, in the world and continues to do so. Um, the fact is when bands become successful, that drops off. And that's a study. That is a study. Why would you, when you have a recording studio in your home, you can buy any instrument you want. You want to buy a $100,000 Steinway piano? Got it, baby. We'll ship it on Monday. You have everything you need. You can even call someone up and say, do you want to do a, a cameo on our new album? And they'll fly right over and jump on your album. And the quality of the music has precipitously dropped. That artistry has escaped them because the wild hunger and passions are all gone. And that applies to everything that human beings do. It really, really applies to architecture as well. And I'm 100% sure that Henry will have things to say about this, but I think it's interesting that um, the more, the more we standardize and digitalize the way that we um, design, the more we might fall into the trap of um, uh, the cookie cutter type mm. Buildings and existence of buildings, whereas what we what we used to have to do and, and what is exciting is design something nuts and then fix the 
fix the problems later. Whereas now we try and fix the problems. Just just on that, because it's just one of my favorite things. I, I used to go through a phase in my professional career where I'd look at buildings and be able to tell you roughly what software package they probably designed that in. Like how <laughs> the, the glazing and the curtain walling works. I'd be like, that is, that's got Revit written all over it. And I, think- I do remember the first time I saw something like that. I saw a mistake um, from the software that they, they were drawing a curb and they hadn't offset the line. So the person had just put it in exactly as a drawing had said, and there was this perfect circle and then the curb was backed off because that was what it was. And I think there's something very interesting there about how the tools you have define what you produce in a sense. I think that's one of the things I I am a big fan of all sorts of styles, but one of the things I love about Art Deco was that was the kind of, we were bringing in the machine age we're bringing standardization into our art, into our world, and it made things look this a certain way because those were the tools we were using. And I think that is a force that is perpetuating throughout the our world as people. And it's certainly it's happening in games now because, for example, if you're I've been tinkering uh, with the Unity engine, and if you want to do physics in Unity, it does it. But it does it its way, and you don't have anything to do with it, and then that's done, and that's kind of no longer your problem. So it, it's, it, it's, it's a difficult argument, though, isn't it? Because if you think about things like fire safety and Grenfell, and um, what was the the school in Dublin? I think where half of the the wall fell off into the playground and um, could have had huge implications, but luckily there were no kids there. All of that stuff happened because something um, used ineffective materials or had a problem with the design. And so you sort of think to yourself, well, if we can say, if you always build it like this, it will always be safe Mm. and we're doing the right thing. But there has to be that balance between between keeping us engaged as human beings as well. Because how fucking dull will the world be if we just all live in in square boxes. Mm. I think that's the thing. Because I think what you're talking about there, well, I'm going to make it what I'm talking about. is your. It's the same reason that bands start sucking, Is in my opinion, is that you reflect the world around you when you create. And if the world around you is... Uh, you know, actually difficult and hard and full of full of pain and sorrow, then uh, you are reacting to that and you're reacting to that world. So almost by being successful in the kind of a music context, I think that for me, I think that's one of the reasons that the art starts to fail is because everything's okay. It's okay. I'm okay. I could do one just like the last one. That's fine. And it, I, And that on one end, I still, I think that applies in the built environment just as well, because if you're, you know, if you're out there, you're trying to forge in a difficult environment and you're trying to do the best you can, you are pushing off the people that are, are around you. And you might be working with very combative people, people who are obstructive, or you might be working with people who are very collaborative. And I think that comes out in what you produce. It's again, it's like that tools thing, the, the artifact, the thing that is made at the end, like you say, Neil, you can tell what software that's done in. I think you can potentially also tell what culture that was made in, uh, what environment, what what sort of world that person was living in, what sort of society. And I, uh, you know, I think that's a fact. 
Bam. It's like you're breaking the art down forensically and it tells a story of the time. And I, and I think it's true of a lot of things um, that we have all around us. And it's, it's, uh, but you know, I was trying to, um, I was trying to think about, about building, is it architecture? Is it, is that where the, is that where the magic is? Is it in the, is it in the design or is it in the structural? Because it sounds like it's in the design. I think this is the problem that we have in our industry is that we assume that it's only in one place. And that's why we become siloed. Whereas the fact of the matter is in, in our projects, in the built environment, everything matters from the people who are going to be operating the building um, uh, right back to the people who will be designing it, the very initial concept, um, the first ever use case, um, and then the construction team. Because you can have the best design in the world, but if you have an incompetent construction team, they'll simplify it. Um, And so, especially with the contract types that we have in the UK, but we always think that our, our job is our silo. And if we get that done, the project will be successful. Mm-hmm. But in, in reality, it's not, it's, it's a whole, that's why we try and push the term, the built environment, because it is the whole, it's not construction anymore. And it's not design. It's like the whole concept right. of building. Which, which, which always gets me to Minecraft. Like this, this thing's about Minecraft where people Go and build stuff out of, I can't remember the size of the bricks from a pixel blocks. perspective. Just blocks. Be Just blocks, right? It's blocks. Uh, you know, the game's effectively free. The, you know, the, the, the people coming together is free and they build ridiculous things. Um, and the, I, I'm just, there is not much difference between Minecraft and designing a building. And all the crap that we put in the way of the day-to-day work is just, I, I would love to do a study of here's a difference between building your favorite thing in Minecraft versus building your house in reality. And what just, let's just, let's just do a list of what's different because the, 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 yeah. So you can just drop a block in, in Minecraft and you don't have to worry about subsidence. But couldn't, wouldn't it be great, though, if, if, our, if, our, if our industry was a set of rules in something like Minecraft? So you, you can build whatever the hell you want, and it just drops you warnings every yeah. now and again. You know, that, that, that won't be fire, fire um, retardant. And um, this here is getting so tall that it's not structurally stable anymore. Like, just those little pop-ups. So you can have complete freedom Mm-hmm. but just all the right warnings. It's funny you say that. I've seen, uh, I remember doing a design competition way back when uh, Jonathan uh, Monkley was leading a team uh, of, uh, of school children. And uh, one of them just got absolutely into it and uh, did everything. They, they did the architecture, they did the structure, they even did the kind of the, um, the HVAC, you know, the uh, MEP, the mechanical electrical stuff. So it was all air conditioned and it worked. It, it wouldn't have passed any standardization committee. You know, it would have been rejected from planning. It would have been rejected by all these people, but it did the job. And it, it made me realize that actually, you know, as you say, the, here's the job, here's the thing we need to do. And we've been adding all these extra layers of complexity on top of it. Um, and then that's like gaming again. It's like, um, where do you add the detail and where do you add the fuzz almost? Like when you have um, uh, 
I, I'm guessing. I'm very. <laughs> I don't know anything about. I think you're all on the right lines. When you have when you have huge conceptual, um, artistic games, and you, but a very fast moving character. I'm guessing you have to make decisions about which areas you, um, you allow to be quickly rendered. So probably slightly less detail, and and where you you focus in and where it matters. Well, I guess you're right. Um, when you design a game, especially a game with environments, um, it's like a building, right? You you can't you could build you could design and put up a, a skyscraper. Uh, when spend instead of spending a hundred billion, you spend a trillion or ten trillion, and without a doubt, it's the greatest skyscraper the world has ever seen, right? But you can't work that way. And gaming is the same. Gaming is. Everything you have, certain, we, sometimes I use the, uh, the bed sheet analogy. You've got a sheet, but the mattress is huge. And you, you, as a designer, you want the sheet to just match the mattress. You just want to be able to pull the sheet over all four corners of the mattress. But invariably, you don't. And you have to take a section of that, and you have to decide what you're going to cover. And you can cut the sheet in half, and you can cover two sections, or a section over here, a section over there. But at the end of the day, you want a cohesive, fluid experience. So you're gonna you're gonna focus on something, and you're gonna decide where the player is going to get the most value. Um, so you blow your budget, as it were, on the things that you want. And in film, they're doing that, um, you know, a lot. Where it's, say there's an action movie, but they go look at if the whole thing is action end to end it's going to be a $500 million movie. So we're going to need some really, really good dialogue to hold together some conversations that are, that are people just talking to each other. Nothing's exploding. Costs are low. We're shooting 20 minutes of this movie in like three days because there's just not a lot of prep work. And then they're going to blow the rest of the money on pyrotechnics and cars and, and stunts and everything else. Gaming has that same thing. And I guess you're saying buildings, have that same constraint. But is it is it fair to say, I mean, I've seen so many films about London that they do flyovers of London and London is becoming literally one of the most exciting cities architecturally um, that that is that that features in so much film. It's just people want to blow it up. They want to they want to have uh, you know, spy movies there. There's shit going on all over the place. We always get a shot of the London Bridge and the Tower and uh, the Needle, or the sorry, the Eye. Uh, the Eye is in every freaking uh, uh, shot. It's a Ferris wheel. Get over it. Yeah. You know that's a whole, That's a, that's a conversation in itself. The Eye of London. <laughs> but that, that actually comes from it all comes from problems like the there are certain restrictions on on eye lines and views and so we have to accommodate a, an ever-growing number of people maybe actually interestingly less so now that we're, we're through a pandemic and people realize that they don't have to all live work eat sleep and breathe in the center of london but we used to have to find ways to accommodate people but then still allow that person over there to see St. Paul's and to still have a clear view of the, the London Eye from, from this very expensive hotel. And so there were some very clear problems that allowed people not that, to think about something a little bit more um, interesting, I, I think. Like when you're, think, when you're trying to solve problems around fire safety and all that kind of bread and butter stuff, you can get a bit tired. But when your problem is, I have to have a building that 
curves in such a way that if I'm stood over here, I can still see St. Paul's from if, if I am six foot tall. Like these are the kind of problems that people are trying to solve. And that's actually quite an interesting problem. And that's how we end up with the walkie talkie. Yeah. And it's it's also why New York looks the way it does, because their, their uh, zoning laws were all about light. So when they were bringing in the skyscrapers, it created that kind of uh, not it's not triangular, you know, but it, they 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 do taper towards the top. And that makes sense structurally. But it was also a mandate. So it kind of forced the designers. So are we almost saying that if we bought Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci back, we don't want to just say, go do your thing. We want to give them a really good problem with some really cool, thorny issues that need resolving. So we do need to add some of that society, some of that, some of those extra layers. Interesting problems lead to interesting solutions. Mm. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And that's where, you know, when you're looking at real world stuff versus virtual world stuff, um, virtual world stuff should really be off the chain because the constraints really, truly are, you don't piss off a bunch of established citizens that can't see a view. You know, I heard a funny story when the Eiffel Tower was built, that people in Paris hated it. They absolutely hated it. They thought it was an eyesore, and they wanted it torn down, because damn it, that's the ugliest thing they'd ever seen, and why would you build a building that had no utility other than to go to the top and to look out and then come back down? And now it is literally... You can't see, you can't get a postcard. You can't get a, uh, you can't get anything with Paris on it that doesn't have a, the Eiffel Tower baked into the, uh, the graphic mm-hmm. design somewhere. And mm-hmm. they are so proud of that building, that structure, that it, if somebody were to like, if something were to happen to it, heaven forbid, you know, like superstitions and everything, right? That would piss the, the people of France off to no end, right? To literally no end because that's their thing and it means so much to them. How did that, how did, and it was born of some of the most whimsical passion, right? A whimsical passion to just build something tall out of, out of the building materials of the day. That to me is so great. Oh, sorry, go on, Neil, go on. That's what I saying, and the insane thing, and I don't know how this, I, 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 um, it, uh, Buckminster Fuller, yeah, Buckminster <laughs> Fuller asked Sir Norman Foster, how much does your building weigh? So this, this whole thing about how buildings are built today, um, from a sustainability perspective, from a, um, it's mostly commercial, you know, throw up a load of concrete, sit some glass on it. That's, you know, skyscrapers look like the way that they do is because it's the cheapest way to build that thing. But if there was a moment in time when that was not on the equation, the Eiffel Tower is a great example of that. That's just it's almost just a gross uh, symbol of wealth of I can, I can pay for these really expensive raw materials, get stupid amounts of people to throw it together. And if we look at period architecture, that's sort of a representation of that. These beautiful old buildings of um, they look beautiful because not, you know, they weren't, they weren't commercially constrained in the same way that they are today. I mean, do you get, do you feel for the future of games is, um, one of the things, I, and I don't know if it's just a thing you get older, you know, the, the past was great, the future's rubbish. But I think there's definitely a thing around, and Henry was mentioning this earlier, and I'll pause there in case you need to cut it, um, is, you know, games, you know, I think about the app store on my phone and I want to get a good engaging game. And they're just like behaviorally draining junk. 
I think of some of the games I've played, some of them are yours, some of them are others, just great games, really enjoyed them, got into them, and they got, the, got all the mechanics there and so much to explore. I just, you know, the, I think the last game that made me feel that way was um, more like virtualized board games than actual, you know, we took like AAA. You know, don't get me wrong, FIFA, put me in front of FIFA for a few hours, that's great, but that's that's more of a, that's got like a, a cultural ingrainment of like friends, you know, football lads, and we, we come together and play football on FIFA. It, it's not the same as sort of telling a story through a game, and I, it feels like we're losing that storytelling element, I guess. Summarise my, I'm going to summarise my question. You know, architecture's changed because of the commercial constraints. You can't have the buildings that you once were. The commercial constraints around games now is is it the same story the, you can't build do you have an example of a game previously you can never build now because you'll never be given the time or the space to think creatively etc well you know what I'll, I'll tell you i'll tell you something about the evolution and you can draw a conclusion from this is that in the early days of game making games cost you know almost nothing fifty thousand a hundred thousand dollars um one person would work on that for eight weeks or maybe eight months but the um, as time went on, the budgets got more and more and more, and there was this trailing effect of this middle budget. So you had so you had a period of time where you know total annihilation was one point one million, uh, Dungeon Siege was six point three million, um, the, the Supreme Commander one point was ten and a half million, I believe. And and what happened was is there was this thing where there were these hit games, hit games that sequeled. And they knew how many they were going to sell. So they understood, they ran the numbers and they could figure out how much they wanted to spend on the sequel. And it was just getting to this thing. So Halo probably cost somewhere between 20 and $40 million. And then Halo 2 probably cost between 60 and 80 million. And then Halo 3. And then by the time you got up to Halo today, they're $300 million games and on. But if I have a new idea for a game, nobody's going to give me $300 million. They're just not right. (laughs) Even if you are the world's greatest game designer and you say, I have got a new idea, a brand new idea. And I want $300 million. The answer is no, no, no. You build something for cheap and you test the market and you see if there's viability there and then you can grow the budget over time. That is a, a, Sorry, sorry, Vicky. I just that what happened was is then the bottom fell out of the curve. The bottom, I'm sorry, the bottom fell out. So you had nothing in the middle anymore. You had hit games that had hundred million dollar budgets, and then you and then on a curve, so it's a gradation, and then on the bottom end of the curve, all this experimental stuff like Steam puts up five, six, seven thousand games a year because there's no harm, no foul at throwing a million bucks, five hundred thousand bucks. You know, at trying, testing the water, it's like a proving ground. And if it proves itself, it literally wants to jump across this horseshoe shape, this inverse bell curve, and it wants to jump to the other side and get real money thrown at it. Okay. Uh, That evolution, I never saw it coming, but it did this. And it means that if you think about it, right, all the innovation has to be down here in the arts because the arts is where you're going to get it. You're not going to get it in budget. You're not going to get it by throwing at it a hundred engineers all doing brilliant, highly optimized code. That's not available. It's going to be off the shelf engine. It's going to be unity. It's going to be unreal. It's going to be something else that's really simple. And then if it ever 
it, and then it has a chance to evolving, but it has to jump across this, that, this gap and it has to get to the other side. And I believe, to finish the point, that this industry that lives up on this side of the curve is going to slowly die. Every one of these dinosaurs is going to die off because something making it across, for everyone that makes it across, two of these will die. And yes, we will have FIFA soccer forever, literally forever. It will never die. Amen. It's the North Star. <laughs> I, I hope you're happy to hear that. Um, but, <laughs> but the other stuff, not so much. Sorry, Vicky. No, no, you. that's all right. I'm, I just find it, I find it fascinating, the correlations and the um, almost the opposite concepts as well, because a lot of the, um, the sales pitch for, for bringing virtual into the built environment is that we can mess about over here for, for no money. And we can test everything virtually before we start building it physically. And, um, and, and it's almost like um, this, the sand pit. And I think we think of that as um, uh, an area that needs so little resource, like compared to the actual physical built environment where materials are ridiculously expensive. I think sometimes we forget that actually so is the virtual world. And we assume that we're going to be able to build, build a, um, a national digital twin and, um, and test concepts in it all the time, throw mm-hmm. this in there and that in there and solve these problems. And we'll have it all figured out virtually before we start doing anything physically. Um, but actually from a real, real world example there, it you can quite clearly see that that, it's it's not as it's not as simple as that. I think that thing. I, I think the two uh, that those market forces you're talking about. I think they're they're prevalent in the built environment. I think you know, I want an airport. An airport. It's not it's not off the shelf by no means, but it has the functions are very well established. There will be some element of an aesthetic element in uh, of an. There will be. There will be some element of uh, making it unique and making it beautiful, but really the core function of them is Mm. uh, we're talking about boxes, we're talking about corridors, we're talking about moving people, and that is very well known. And I think like Neil was talking about earlier with, um, you know, a block of flats or, you know, an office building, we've reached that point where it's, there is almost a gap in the middle. You know, we know what we're going to get. And then we have actually been able to kind of take this foundation and then occasionally some great designer will get the opportunity to take this box and then maybe make it a little different and maybe put a slant on it, but it can't change as much as it could have done in an earlier time. So we've we've been talking about how you know, the, the markets have emerged and how there's this kind of pattern to them. I mean, I'll be honest, I love games. I have put probably, well, I know I've put in excess of 50,000 hours into games in my life. Um, when they started tracking how much you were playing games, that was when I discovered there was a game I put 7,000 hours into. That's when I knew I had a problem. Um, <laughs> I didn't think that'd be... That? That was uh, Battlefield Bad Company 2. Big shoot, big shooting, big shooting guy. I had my own, you know, I was part of a clan and we were playing every night. I mean, I put stupid hours into World of Warcraft as well. 
World of War crack, as they used to call it. And I don't play games like that anymore. I, I, I can feel when a game is playing on my addiction. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, when they're like, oh, you just got to come back. No, you need to come back in an hour. Come back in an hour. Come back in a bit. No, no, no. Oh, there's something new now. Or oh, there's something new you can do. Yeah. And so that, you know, they, they're keeping you in this mm. loop. And, uh, well, I gotta say, it, I don't. I don't think I approve. <laughs> it, it is like a drug. It, they they they've literally crafted those games to be kind of because they want to make as much money, but they're not taking a moment to think about the health and welfare of the people mm. that are playing their game, mm. and that's got to change because it's an unhealthy. Um, it's like the cigarette companies. You know, the cigarette companies just said, "Screw it, we're going to try to sell as many cigarettes." You know about the big scandal with uh, I think it was RJR. RJ Reynolds or one of the big, it was a big American tobacco company. I think it was either the eighties or the nineties. I can't remember. They had the big lawsuit um, and they lost because they were adding addictive elements to their cigarettes. And that was a big story back when I was a kid. And, and I was like, Oh yeah, they did a bad thing and they had to pay a big fine. But today as a 50 plus year old man, I look at that and I imagine there was a bunch of 50 plus year old men running the company back then. And they were okay with the decision. They were saying, yes, yes, put addictive substances into the cigarettes. And that was not okay. That was not okay. And they, they really, it was, it, was, mm. it was a terrible thing for them to do. Well, video games have an opportunity and have to confront that same, that same question. And they have to be responsible and they have, they have, a, they have a moral obligation to the world to make games, make an, a form of entertainment healthy and not not destroy the lives of the people that are, that are consuming their entertainment. It's really important. And it's a big, it's a big subject. And uh, I would hate to see the federal government of countries all around the world have to intervene to, to regulate them because they can't bring themselves to regulate mm-hmm. on their own. That, 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 that would be terrible. Cause that's happening. It, you know, they, there are gambling laws all over the world. And it, it's kind of, it's coming dangerously close. And I would argue it's crossed the line in loads of places where the, the addictive nature of gambling is exactly what is driving a lot of these games. You know, I, I think games like Candy Crush are a classic example. That is, in my mind, effectively a slot machine, but it's, it's got a very tight loop of gameplay Gameplay. I'm going to say that in inverted commas. I just just wonder if it the you know if the simple addition of money into the game makes it gambling, then therefore you've you know therefore you've 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 broken you've broken the oh maybe that's not that's too strong. No, no, it's it's not too strong because it brings it into the new model of making money on games. Games like Fortnite, free. Games like Player Unknown Battleground, free. They're both the same sort of game, which is a battle royale. You basically have 10 to 20 minutes until the map is really small and you've got to shoot the other guys. But they're free. Where you spend the money is on buying the skins. But you don't buy the skins. You buy the boxes and you open the boxes and there might be a skin in there. So you are paying for uncertainty. And I think it comes back to, I I remember one of my favorite uh, experiments uh, that I found uh, on the internet was, um, it was a a behavior of chickens. 
and they found that uh, if there was a little there was a little uh, button that the uh, chickens could peck and it would give them a grain and they set up a few different systems and if they gave them a bit of grain then they would eat until they were full and then it would stop um, if it was every other they kind of worked it out and they were like right I need to tap it twice to get a grain but if they made it random the chickens would just keep tapping even if even if no grain was coming out they would just keep hitting it they keep hitting that button and I think that behavioral loop is super strong in these sorts of games where you're you're spending money sometimes you're giving that money for free but ultimately you need to pay for these boxes you're paying to open these things and there's nothing in them there's nothing in them you just keep opening it's nothing in them nothing in them Shit, so why am I doing this? Why am I doing it? And, and there's that, almost that kind of, you know, moment of clarity for an alcoholic of you've opened your 10th crate for the day and you're like, what am I doing? What is this? Yeah, I've never spent a penny on any of it. Uh, I just don't have any desire whatsoever. Um, getting old is a very interesting thing because, you know, um, you, 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 your desire for certain things not only diminishes, but it can go away completely to the point where you actually find it repulsive, mm. uh, something like, um, you, you just think, Oh, Oh, beautiful Saturday. Sun is shining. It's so gorgeous outside. If I'm not outside in that sunshine, I'm committing a crime worse than anything I've got to get, especially here in Seattle where we don't get very much of it. So I did like 35 miles yesterday on on uh, on the on a bike uh, with my girlfriend. We rode around Lake Washington here. That's between Seattle and uh, Bellevue, and it's just so rewarding and so gorgeous and so fun. And you think about that, juxtapose that with sitting in front of a computer, uh, which I did through my whole youth, um, 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s, um, sitting in front of a computer playing games on a Saturday or a Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. You, you can hardly believe you did it. Um, so I think, I, think, um, I think you get a lot of perspective when you get older, but games are still awesome. They're still a lot of fun, but for, for rainy days, for, for lonely nights, for, for early, you know, for, for winter when the, when the snow's coming down outside and it's cold outside and you're, you're tucked in inside playing a great game. There's wonderful moments to play video games, but there's moments when you need to be out there in that, gorgeous sunshine, getting exercise, breathing the air, um, the balance, the, the balance of life. It has to be found. Sorry. Oh, that got all a right. Bit fine. I, I, all little, right. I'll go outside. Okay. If you insist. Deep. Sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> no. I think that's a great ending. Thank you, Chris. I'll leave you to your day. Thank you for indulging us. I know it's a bit random, but. Um, it was truly random. And the best conversations oh, always oh, are. I appreciate that. All right. Have a great Monday evening. Yes, we will. Have a good Monday afternoon. Take care. And we'll talk to you later. All right. Forward to it. All right. Thank you.